those who are ill and that type of thing. Everybody's here, I just can't see them. And so I am thankful that we do have the phone lines. I had been inclined as of yesterday to cancel the trip back east because of Barbara's situation. I uh, didn't know just how she was uh, doing, and I was concerned about it. But uh, uh, this morning, uh, things are much improved. I think she'll be released to the uh, rehab center probably within the next 24 to 48 hours. And uh, there appears to be nothing life-threatening there at this point. Uh, so I feel much more confident as of this morning than I did even yesterday in her situation. And she's been urging me to go in any case, but I, I was kind of betwixt and between and, and concerned about it yesterday. But as of this morning, I just came from there. Uh, I feel very much more confident that things are going to go well and uh, that she is going to be okay. So your prayers certainly are appreciated in continuing there. But uh, things are looking pretty good as of today. Of course, I can always turn around and head right back if there's an emergency of any kind and be here pretty quickly. So uh, my mind has been quite a bit alleviated in the last 24 hours. So, all of those from here in Points East, uh, the trip is still on. I'll probably be leaving tomorrow afternoon sometime uh, and uh, be in Omaha and then in Michigan and down into Ohio and maybe Tennessee. I'm not sure yet on some stops, but uh, we will proceed on that basis for the moment. All right, I think that's about all there is to announce at the moment, so let's get back to the Psalms. We came down to chapter 29 last time, and uh, we'll pick it up there. Uh, Remember also, it's, it's kind of a theme through these first two sections, that much of this is direct prophecies of Christ and what He would go through as a human being. And then, secondarily, it's certainly echoes what we go through as well. Uh, Not just David or the one who wrote the psalm particularly, but Christ inspired them to write, and he knew that they would be specific prophecies of his life. And of course, his life was lived on this earth in great part to go through what is slated for all of us to go through. He had to come and go through human living, human exasperation and frustration, uh, sorrow, uh, pain, uh, temptation of every kind, just as we do. There is a plain statement in Scripture that he was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet sometimes I find someone who does not believe Scripture and think, well, he couldn't have been tempted like we are because he was God. No, the Scripture plainly says he was tempted in every way, just like we are. And there was always the potentiality of sin there. Otherwise, we do not have a Savior who understands us, or a high priest who understands us. Because he came here 
with the specific purpose of coming to understand on a personal level what we go through. So much of that is recorded here in the Psalms, you'll notice as we go through. <clears throat> he says here, Give to the Eternal, chapter 29, O you mighty, give to the Eternal glory and strength, or ascribe those things to Him. Recognize that He has them. Give to the Eternal the glory due to His name. Worship the Eternal in the beauty of holiness. You could give a whole sermon or series on the beauty of holiness because there's so much in the Bible about righteousness and holiness. But here we are urged, exhorted, to worship Him in the beauty that holiness creates. When we, if we, <laughs> whenever we do things righteously and in a holy manner, uh, as prescribed by God and His instruction on how to live, Life does go better, and life can be more beautiful. Our attitudes are better if we have a holy approach to life and toward His ways. Our problem is what is at the crux of this. We as human beings are not holy by nature, and therefore we have to be exhorted and urged to look to Him in His holiness and do our level best <clears throat> to become like He is. Because He and His Son live in beauty. They live in holiness. They do not get discouraged or frustrated. They have minds that are different than ours. And we look to that change someday. And we're trying to be holy now, and it's an uphill battle daily to have holy, righteous attitudes and thoughts. But they have them automatically. Godspeed that day that we don't have to be exhorted to do so, but it's automatic. And since it is automatic, is a very great reason Christ had to come to this earth and live in a situation where it was not automatic. Where he had the downward pulls just like we do. And therefore was tempted in every point. Not just a few, but all of them, like as we are. To be our mediator, to be our high priest, to be the one who goes to bat for us, in that sense, with the Father, he had to know exactly what we deal with from personal experience. So he is not unfeeling, he is not without compassion. He understands. But I'm thankful that he's here, there now at the right hand of his Father, pulling for you and me. And he says, Father, I was there. I know what it's like. The Father loves us too, as he said. But he adds a valuable uh, part to the equation by having been here and suffered what we suffer. The voice of the Eternal is upon the waters. That's symbolic in the Bible, of the people. The voice of the Eternal is upon the people of this world. The God of glory thunders. The Eternal is upon many waters. So he's concerned for everyone. Uh, as quoted in John, he so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son that we might have everlasting life. So he has a plan, <clears throat> not all enacted right now as we know, 
to eventually save the vast majority of mankind, even those dead and gone, through a resurrection to the flesh, when they will have opportunity to learn of his ways without Satan around, and conditions will be better than they are today, and they will have opportunity to grow and to qualify under far better circumstances than us. God is only calling a few now, obviously, and it is harder now. I think we all recognize that, but the reward is also greater. Bet a penny, win a penny. Bet a dollar, win a dollar. Well, not in a casino, but you know what I mean. No, no pain, no gain. So even though we have a harder row to hoe, we also have a greater reward awaiting us. And that should give us hope, and it should give us encouragement to do that which is good and right and proper. No, human beings aspire to rule. They aspire to control. They might say, well, I don't want to be in office, or I don't want to control. Yes, you do. There are many people on this earth who are control freaks, we might say. And we do want to control those things around us. We want to control our families. We want to control our mates. We want to control. It is innate within us. So why do we have trouble with people trying to get offices and churches and so on and political office because of power and control? Now, women might say, I don't want to be the head. I don't want to control my husband. But then once in a while, one of them will say, you may be the head, but I'm the neck. And I can turn the head where I want it to go. So, that again is control, to one degree or another. Anyway, where was I when I went there? Uh, Verse 4, the voice of the eternal is powerful. The voice of the eternal is full of majesty. The voice of the eternal breaks the cedars. Yes, the eternal breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars sometimes are referred to as churches. Uh, Zechariah 11 refers to three big trees that will be torn down in one month and also shepherds or ministers as well in a period of time where the church is going to finish splintering and falling apart. So he has his hand and his eyes upon all these things. He makes them all to skip like a calf. Lebanon, Syrian, like a young unicorn. So, Everything in the universe, including the stars, he has total control over and can cause them to do as he pleases. There is the God we worship. This is to help us glorify and understand the power of Almighty God. Because it's easy to think, well, he's not listening, or he can't do this, or he can't do that. Yes, he can. Unless we limit him by our thoughts and attitudes and activities, and we do, he can do anything he wishes. That's why it doesn't take faith more than the size of a grain of mustard for God to cause mountains to move. It is a level of trust, however small, 
that is complete. Now, a mustard seed may be small, but understand it is also complete. Okay? It has everything within it. If you add water and soil to cause it to grow into a tree. So our faith may be in some ways small, but it needs to be a complete faith, a full and trusting faith. Verse 7, the voice of the eternal divides the flames of fire, or splinters the flames of fire. He can scatter any fire, any power that comes before him. The voice of the Eternal shakes the wilderness. The Eternal shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Eternal makes the hinds to calve, or the deer to have their, their babies, and discovers the forests. And in his temple does everyone speak of his glory. That's why Paul says there in Romans 1, that we see God through the creation around us. So he's calling into account the forests, the earth around us, the stars above us, to describe the power of God, that we might give Him the glory He deserves, and that we might feel small and humble before Him. The Eternal sits upon the flood. Yes, the Eternal sits king forever. So, He sits above the flood. He says He'll be king of kings, lord of lords, and then He will rule the earth with a rod of iron. So, He will rule over all the peoples. He does it now. He has not taken that job yet. Satan is still the ruler of this world. If you don't believe it, look around a little bit. Christ has not taken ownership or rule of the world yet. It was turned over to Satan. And God has allowed him to rule the earth to this point. Now, that does not mean God does not have overall control of Satan. He can cause him to do as he pleases and even allows him to go before his throne daily to accuse you and me. But he has that power. He's the prince of the power of the air. And he rules the kingdoms of men today. And that's why you have evil and greed and chicanery, falsehood, lying and stealing, and power plays among the governments of men. They are from the background, guided, led, and controlled by Satan and his spirit and power. And God is not intervening. I'm not saying God is weak. It is simply not his choice or his purpose to intervene yet. Now, when he does intervene, you're going to see the heaven and the earth shake. And Satan is then ultimately, after a brief period, going to be bound for a thousand years and not able to affect people whatsoever. People make the mistake of think that, thinking that Satan and God are in a battle for the minds of men today. No. God has turned mankind over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And that's why when he says to disfellowship someone who will not follow God's way, it is for the destruction of the flesh. You turn them over to Satan and his system. And God honors that. Because that's where the rest of the world is. Now, when Christ sets his hand to rule, he will rule. 
And we will live in peace and harmony all over the earth. Meanwhile, let's understand. We are to come out of the world and not to fellowship with it because it's Satan's world. It's essentially his music. It's essentially his movies. It's essentially his business plan, his economy. Everything about this world is, a satan is part of the satanic system. And we have to be very, very careful what we imbibe of. You go into a supermarket and almost everything there is in one way or another, or in many ways, poison for you. <clears throat> God says, as we heard in the sermonette, that we are to do quality. It has to do with how we breed our cattle, that we have quality there and not breed them in ways that will weaken them. Not to sow seed together in such a way that the plants are weakened. Perhaps some of the grafting in that is done is wrong. And the management of plants in various ways. And we need to be very careful what we put in our bodies. That also needs to be quality. And people say, well, you're making too big a deal out of just food. No. We should not mingle good food with drugs and poisons, and junk, because Satan wants to destroy the health of the world, and he controls big food and big pharmacy. And virtually almost everything in a grocery store is poison in one way or another. And some things are just outright poison. We won't go into all of that today, but it is a big point that we need to consider in terms even of righteousness, that we do the best we can with what we have to eat as well as we can, and not to eat the junk of this world even more, any more than we partake of the doctrinal junk of the churches and Satan, or any other thing that is not good. That's one reason he has us out here, is to learn to grow our own, to produce our own, and so on. Homogenized milk clogs your arteries. It destroys your heart. Natural milk is good for you. Unpasteurized, unhomogenized, it's good food. If it's pasteurized and homogenized and polluted, it is poisonous. It harms you rather than helps you. I don't care how much vitamin D, D pills they put in it. God will be king forever once he sets his hand to rule. The eternal will give strength to his people. The eternal will bless his people with peace. So this is prophecy, isn't it? We don't have that today. We don't have Christ ruling on the earth today. He has not taken charge. But he is going to give us strength and he is going to bless us with peace. Psalms are full of prophecy. Chapter 30, I will extol you, O Eternal, <clears throat> for you have lifted me up and have not made my foes to rejoice over me. We can praise God and worship Him in that He has shown us truth. He has shown us a way away from Satan and the ways of this world that is going to do us good in the long run. O Eternal, my God, I cried to you and you have healed me. We are being healed Physically, we're being healed mentally, 
emotionally and spiritually. We see those things in different ways at different times. O Eternal, you have brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing to the Eternal, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. He is holy, and He is leading us to holiness and everlasting life and peace, safety, prosperity, no worries. For His anger endures but a moment. In His favor is life. So His overall attitude is that we live and live eternally. It is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom, as Paul put it. That's what He desires and wants the most. <clears throat> but we have to go through this first. Even as Christ is sitting at His Father's right hand, as desired, but look what He had to go through first. There is a way of escape whereby we, for the most part, will not have to go through the kind of death that He went through. We can be preserved and brought through that and protected and we should be praying that we'd be worthy of that at the time. Well, his anger doesn't last long. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So, night can seem long, night can seem dark, but he uses the darkness and the light to show that there is hope in the future. Even as he says in Lamentations, that every morning he gives us a new lease on life, a new chance to do good for that day, and to have a better day than yesterday. He gives us a clean slate. We ask for forgiveness and mercy, and He gives us a new day, a new opportunity, every 24 hours. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Paul echoes that in the book of Hebrews, where he says that those things which are shaken will be shaken, but blessed are those who cannot be moved. I didn't say that exactly as a quote, but that's the essence of it. How stable are we? How strong are we? Can we be moved? Can we let a little root of bitterness come in? Can we let a little discontent in? A little doubt in? And first thing you know, it can carry us away. Or is our trust and our faith in God so strong that we cannot be moved. We need to be that stable and not shrink back, but press forward to the high calling that we have. Eternal, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. Now, he says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and the mountains. But in reference here to ourselves as the mountain of strength that we have built in God that that will not be moved. It will be strong. <clears throat> you did hide your face and I was troubled. That's where we are right now. He tells the New Testament church right now, the end time church, I've hid my face from you because of your attitudes. So he has done this in the past and he is doing it right now. And I was troubled. And haven't we been troubled? Aren't we still troubled? Because we're not getting the kind of attention from God that we would like to have. And yet the ball is in our court. He said, I blessed you, I shined upon you, I called many, and you took it for granted 
Now I've taken it away, and my face is turned from you. All you have to do is turn back to me wholeheartedly, and I will turn and bless you. So we might let ourselves get in an attitude about why God isn't giving us more blessings. But he explains it to us. He tells us why. So the ball is in our court to perform. And then he will turn and perform. He does tell us, you will turn to me early. But it won't take too long until we go through what we're having to go through as a church. I mean, the overall church of God as well as our own little group. And then we will turn. But it takes trouble, it takes tr tribulation and trials and difficulties to cause us to turn. As long as he leaves us alone and we just waltz on through, we're not going to change our attitudes. So it's, it's a difficult thing when you're not getting the answers from God you want. It's easy to start to get in a little bit of an attitude and yet, when you read the Scriptures carefully, you find that it's our fault, not His. So don't allow yourself to at all get bitter or turned off or jaundiced or uh, in an attitude at all about God. Because it isn't His problem, it's our problem. But overcoming it is the hard part. Verse 8, I cried to you, O Eternal, and of the Eternal I made supplication. So here's the right answer. Christ was a man of sorrows. He was troubled by the things around him. He was troubled by the enemies who threatened to kill him daily. He suffered all those things of mankind. So what was his answer to the problem? I cried to God. I made my supplication to Him. He took the time to meditate on the works of God and to talk to Him and to get the strength and courage that He needed. What profit is there in my blood when I shall go down to the pit? What good is it that my blood be shed? Shall the dust praise you? Shall it declare your truth? <laughs> a living dog is better than a dead lion, as I think Solomon put it in the book of Ecclesiastes. We need to be praising God now while we're alive. Once we're dead, that stops. Hear, O Eternal, and have mercy upon me. Lord, be you my helper. So we supplicate Him. We turn to Him. We talk to Him. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. So in times of trouble, we turn to God and we can expect that things are going to improve. I know I can be troubled, and if I go out and take some time and, and really talk to God and think things through, my heaviness turns back into positive, hopeful approaches. That's what it takes to get back in a right attitude. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you, and not be silent, O Eternal my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So a thankful, hopeful attitude feels good. A discouraged, self-pitying, miserable, frustrated attitude feels really, really bad. Isn't it a 
strange thing with human beings that we know how bad feeling sorry for ourselves and wallowing in our misery feels, and yet we indulge in it anyway. Instead of going to God and getting the strength and the courage and the hope we need, now eventually we'll go there if we're converted and we know we need to do that, but sometimes we like to have our pity party and wallow in our own problems for a good long while before we're ready to do something about it. It's kind of like hating somebody. They don't know what's going on in your mind, perhaps. They don't know you're thinking down about them unless you show it. But who does it hurt? Hurts you. You can probably, if you think about it, think back on your life at people that you've been at odds with, and maybe you nurtured an attitude about them or still have a grudge against them 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. And they may live in another state, they could be in another country, and yet you have not cleared your mind of that attitude. Now, is it hurting them? You might not have even seen them in 5 or 10 years. And they don't know you're mad or hurt or bothered or bitter or whatever your attitude is anymore. It's not hurting them. All the spite and vengeance in your mind is aimed at them, but who is it hurting? You, not them. Get over it already. Repent of it. Get it out of your head. We bear grudges sometimes for decades to our own hurt. And they hurt us more than the person that we have those attitudes about. So it's self-destruction. Let's see, where, where was I here? Oh, okay. I put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. My attitude got better. To the purpose that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent, O eternal my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Thankful mood is a happier mood. And that's what we need to strive for when we get down. Chapter 31, In you, O eternal, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. So our hopes, our dreams, our trust... Our hope for future good all needs to be vested in God. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be you my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. We won't last long otherwise, but we need to look to God to be that rock. Christ is the rock. He's the chief cornerstone of the church and of our lives. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Today, America depends upon its military to be its rock and its fortress. We are to look to God. The American military is going to fail the American people. This nation is about to go into captivity one last time. And the military cannot save us. In fact, I suspect it will turn against us along with our government and everything in it.
because that's what Jeremiah says, that our leader will give his hand and sell us down the river. And I think that it is being done even as we sit here today. So it is being done with malice aforethought. But make no mistake, the punishment from God is not because of our leaders so much as it is because of our own moral degradation and our own lack of serving God. If we would, as a nation, serve God in the way that He wishes to be worshipped, He would protect us both from evil leaders and from military takeover. So it's ultimately our fault. And our leaders are only some of us elected to positions that they misuse and abuse. They reflect us. There's the problem. No, we look to God to save us. And when this thing comes apart, if we are serving and trusting God, He says He will protect us. He is our fortress. Trust in Him. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for you are my strength. Now, it was predestined that Christ would die. And He certainly allowed Himself to go into that net willingly and to be killed. But you know, only three days later, He was out of that net and alive again. Now, we go into the net and He does not promise us resurrection within three days. He does promise, though, that it will come in the next instant of consciousness if we have obeyed and served Him. So, really, He pulls us out of the net even if we die physically on this earth. Because then we rest and wait, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others, as Hebrews 11 says, and our salvation is sure. They might kill our body, but they cannot kill that which God is retaining spiritually. Can't do it. So trust Him. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the eternal. We need to hate the enemy. We need to hate the evil that is around us. And not trust in it, but trust in God. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity. So, not only does he count the hairs of our head, but he also ponders these deeper things. The counting the hair of our head shows his intense interest in us, but that interest then comes through in these other things that he considers about us. He looks at our troubles, he knows what they are. God is more aware of what's happening to you than you are. He is more aware of what is about to happen to you than you are. He considers us individually and personally by name. He is planning a new name for us someday based upon what we have become. So he is watching us very carefully to see what kind of character we will build, how much conversion we will make toward holiness, and then he is going to name us accordingly when he gives us a new name in the kingdom. Hopefully that will be a really, really good name. Uh, you've not shut me up in the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a large place, or as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, a place 
of safety. God hasn't consigned us to Satan in this world, but he's brought us out. Spiritually safer, and he also promises physical safety, if we will put him first. Have mercy upon me, O Eternal, for I am in trouble. My eye is consumed with grief, yes, my soul and my belly. The belly, the intestines, are the seat of a lot of emotions. And there's where we get all roiled up and frustrated and angry, is inside. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones are consumed. So we can feel pretty weak, pretty helpless, pretty small at times. And Christ did as well. Because he was bearing the sins of the world. I was a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to my acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. So the Pharisees were against Christ and tried to kill him, but the least respect he had was from friends and family, where he had grown up and was called an illegitimate child by the people in Nazareth. So he grew up with that around him. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, just a shattered piece of pottery. What good is that? Won't hold water? No good for anything. Well, that's the attitudes we need to come to have when we're preparing for baptism, is to feel like we're worthless, as Herbert Armstrong used to put it, a burned-out hunk of junk that's not worth anything. But a shattered pot is about the same thing. It's not any good for anything. We need to come to have that kind of meekness and humility where we realize there is no self-worth. What good are we? We're human beings with human nature who are going to die and then return to dust. Now, unless some power can raise us above that, We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it's all over. But there is something more ahead, and it makes it worth moving forward. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. But I trusted in you, O Eternal. I said, you are my God. There are going to be people who are plotting to take your life and mine. When Satan comes down to this earth, having been cast down for the last time there in Revelation 12, he is going to come after the church, absolutely both barrels, full of rage and anger, and try to kill every last one who has the light of God in his mind. We will be the target of Satan at that time. And God said he would kill us all physically unless we escape through the mercy of God. But he has offered us that escape. So this isn't just about David and his foes or Christ and his woes. It's about us. These things are directly in our path, right ahead, not very far away. But I trusted in you, O Eternal. I said, you are my God. I have no other God. I will put no other God before you. 
I will not make an idol of myself and do things I want to do that are contrary to your way. Because when we sin, it is a form of idolatry. It's putting ourselves ahead of God. Our desires, our flesh, our wants. We may even see our needs, say our needs at times. But putting yourself ahead of God is idolatry. Breaking of the first commandment. You are my God. I do not worship myself. I do not put myself ahead of you. My times are in your hand. My life, the time that I live on this earth, is in your hand, not my own. How many times have I said we have to turn our lives over to God and trust Him in every way? It's what faith is all about. And here we find it in the Psalms. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from them that persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. So when we come to this attitude with God, He's going to turn His face, not from us, but back to us and shine upon us and remove our sins as a cloud, as Isaiah 44 says. And what happens when you remove the clouds? The sun shines. God's going to shine upon us. Let me not be ashamed, O Eternal, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent in the grave. And he is going to allow most of the people on this earth to die within the next few years. And we can be saved out of it. It's all prophecy through here. Let the lying lips be put to silence. And they will be. Ninety percent of the people roughly on this earth are going to die. I'd say just pick a number within the next ten years. Maybe more a little... Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I'd bet on the less side if I was betting money on it, but I'm not trying to set a prophecy here. I'm just saying this is very close. When you see what's happening in this nation, in the world, in the economies, and the military issues that are becoming more and more obvious day by day now, not week by week, but daily. The leaves are coming on the trees, as Christ said, to watch and know that the time is near. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. We're going to become public enemy number one. The whole world is going to hate the people of God. There won't be very many people of God, and they're going to all worship the beast except those who go God's way. And they're going to hate us with a passion. Count on it. It says so right here. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for them that fear you, which have worked for them that trust in you before the sons of men. Our delivery is not now, and life can be frustrating now. But God says, hey, I'm going to take care of you if you'll do it my way, in spite of everything in front of you. You shall hide them in the secret of your presence from the pride of man. Man is going to rise up in pride and say, I'm going to rule the world. And indeed, the new world order will rule for a very short time, but with feet of iron and miry clay, it will fall apart because of power struggles within and greed and vanity and the ego and pride of men. 
it won't last. When Christ sets up His kingdom, it will last from then on. But man's will not, even though it's going to come. He's going to hide us from the pride and the power of men. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Everything that's going to be said about us and against us and try to kill us, God can protect us from. And he's created a pavilion called Zion to do that in. Blessed be the Eternal, for he has showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. I said in my haste, my first thought was, I'm cut off from God. God's not paying any attention. Now that can be our initial reaction when things don't go well, or when enemies turn against us. But your second thought then is, nevertheless, you heard my prayer. So we can immediately react in fear and frustration and disbelief, but we need to have another thought beyond that. O love the Eternal, all you His saints, for the Eternal preserves the faithful and plentifully rewards the proud doer, that is, with death and destruction. Faithful means what? Full of faith. Will he find faith on the earth? It is going to be a very rare commodity. The whole world will put faith in the beast power that is arising, and very, very few will put them in Almighty God. How weird is that? Shows you the power of Satan and the diabolical nature of mankind. That we cannot look at the creation around us and above us, and say, I'll worship the one who made this instead of the one who makes this new world order with a new currency that everybody is going to bow down before so that they can eat. God tells us if we will obey Him, put Him first, and serve Him, we will eat without money, Isaiah 54. Wine and milk without money. Won't need it. He'll take care of us. Wow. Twenty-four, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. You have to set your mind. I am going to have courage, good, strong belief. And God will strengthen that, all you that hope in the eternal. So then to 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now that's, a, in a way, a continuation of the previous verse. Be of good courage, and God will strengthen you, strengthen your heart. He tells us not to be weak-hearted, but strong-hearted. And if we hope in God and have good courage, then He is going to cover our transgression. Blessed is the man to whom the Eternal imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. It hasn't been too long ago since I either turned here, and I think I just quoted it, and talked about it some. But isn't it, wouldn't it, could it be such a wonderful thing to have the faith and confidence that Paul came to have at the end of his life where he said, 
I've run the course, I finished, my reward awaits me. And he had full faith, hope, and confidence in that, knowing that he had done the job right. Now, Paul had his problems, he had his weaknesses. He said the things he wanted to do he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do he wound up doing. So he had a continual battle with himself. That doesn't mean when he said, hey, I finished it, I got through it, that he didn't have a struggle to get there. We have a struggle too. But you know, if we are struggling and we are doing our very best to obey God and serve Him and are devoted to that, we come in a special situation where the blood of Christ covers us. It doesn't cover the rest of the world yet. His blood does not cover this world's blood. It will in the millennium. It will in the great white throne judgment when these people come back up and are forgiven their sins. But the world today lies in sin and does not have have not even been offered the blood of Christ. The new covenant is only offered to a very few people and only to those who come to know, understand, and follow the truth. Then he offers that covenant which comes with repentance and baptism and then the blood of Christ covers our sin. But all those Catholics and Protestants and, and so-called atheists and Hindus and Buddhists do not have the blood of Christ washing their sins away. It will be offered in the future to them. We are among a very elite few, brethren. We need to understand that. We are not imputed with sin, because we are striving to serve God and we ask for forgiveness under the terms of the new covenant in His blood. And it washes away our sin, and therefore it is not imputed or held against us. It is very rare for any human being to have that privilege today, and yet you and I by the mercy and the grace of God, are under that circumstance. Can we realize what a blessing that is? Most of the population on the face of this earth is about to die because the wages of sin is death. And their sin is not forgiven, therefore they will die. They will have a resurrection in which their sin will be forgiven, and then they will be taught the truth, and most of them will accept, them without, accept it without Satan around. Do we think about that? Do we realize that? Do we really grasp it? What a special opportunity that you and I have. It's not being offered to many. And there are a lot of people who are deceived and think they're under the new covenant and they don't even understand the new covenant whatsoever. They think that everything that God ever 
taught and all of His laws and statutes and judgments are done away with and they're just happy under grace and have no problems and their salvation is secured. What a great deception Satan has put on Israel. See, the Hindus and the Buddhists are so far removed, there's no question. But those who seemingly accept Christ and accept the Bible are the ones who needed the most deception. So we Israelites who have the Bible and have promoted the Bible, but don't believe much of anything it says as a nation, as a people, are in great jeopardy because we have the Word of God and yet don't even understand. But didn't Christ say He spoke in parables so that they could not see and understand lest they die because they wouldn't follow it? Now, He tells us in Jeremiah not to even pray for this nation. That's direct instruction from God. God bless America, we sing. And God says, don't. It is not blessed. It is not forgiven. It will go into captivity. Sad but true. Don't even pray for it. It is not within God's will, and He will not answer it to bless or protect this people. Why in the world would God bless America with all of our sin and degradation and decadence? No. He has chosen a few weak and base. And he said, I will make something of them. And I will not impute sin to them. I will forgive them. And they can be the leaders in the world tomorrow when I do set my hand to save the world. God has mercifully kept the knowledge of his truth from the majority of the Israelite nations today so that he might save them in the end. As Romans eleven twenty six says, all Israel shall be saved. Not now, it's later. So, we, here, are among those very few to whom God does not impute sin today, in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones wax old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I'm all dried up. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Eternal, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. And he tells us, I think it's in Isaiah, to seek the eternal while he may be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come near to him. Do you realize that he is still available to us? But there is coming a time when he will not be found. Ninety percent of the church of God is going into the tribulation. And when they seek him there, he will not be found. He will allow them to die, to be martyred, to be killed. Satan knows every person who is in the church of God today. 
They have the light of God's Spirit, however dim or however bright, and He can recognize it. He even knows us by name. I have been identified personally many, many years ago, decades ago, by a demon-possessed person who knew my name and had never heard my name or seen me. It's incredible. But they know every one of us. They know our faults, they know our weaknesses, and they prey upon us. We must acknowledge our sin and turn to God so that we can be protected. Because Satan knows who we are. And everyone who has the light of God, who goes into the tribulation, I think probably, very likely, will all be martyred. That's why he says, pray that you be counted worthy to escape these things. Because the rest are going to be turned over to Satan. And he knows them. He knows where they are, knows their names. We do not want to be in that position. We need to serve God with our whole heart and pray that our iniquity not be imputed, that we be forgiven, and that we be counted worthy to escape what is coming. And we can. This is not a hopeless cause. He has offered that to any who will seek Him. He's offered it to us. Not many people are even aware of it, but we are. So we have opportunity. So let's acknowledge our sins before him and accept his forgiveness. Verse 6, For this shall everyone that is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Well, that's where I took off on that. Because he will not be found by those people who go into the tribulation. Now, it says there in Zechariah, what is it, about chapter 12, I think, that about 30% or a third will repent in the tribulation. But even though they repent, that does not mean that their physical life will be saved. He that seeks to save his life physically will lose it, but he who is willing to give it physically will save his eternal life. So if they do repent there, they probably will die but their eternal life will be saved. Now, if we choose today to serve God, then our physical life will be preserved, as will our eternal life. You can have your cake and eat it too. We can accomplish both. Let's see, where was I? Verse 6, For this shall every one that is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come near to him. When the peoples of this earth are turned loose in the hordes of military and dog-eat-dog trying to take food from each other, they're not going to come near to God. He won't be found. But for us, he says, You are my hiding place. You will preserve me from trouble. You shall compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. That's why I even started the New Testament church, to call out people and to use that church as an organized thing to help show us and guide us in the eye of God. That's why we're here today, is to consider these scriptures, to talk about them, to encourage ourselves, to understand better. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to you. Somebody comes riding, galloping up on a horse. If they have no control with the bit and bridle, the horse may run right over you. It's happened. We should not have to be controlled with bit and bridle. No one should have to control us. We should learn self-control. We should be able to follow God's ways ourselves. You, with a little child, have to be very, very careful and attentive to make sure that child learns the things it needs to learn as it grows up. It's a continual battle to guide them, to lead them, until they learn self-control. And the more they grow and the more they mature, the less control they need. Now, the problem is that when we reach a certain age as children, we suddenly think we know everything and our parents don't know much. And we think we have self-control and we really don't yet. So it becomes a battle. Now, the same can be true in our spiritual lives. When we're new, we're eager, we anticipate, we're more humble, we're more meek, we're more willing to be taught and to listen all, to all these new things. But then there comes a point where we think, well, I know it all now. I've been there, done that. I don't need to listen to anybody teach me anymore. Because I know it all. That means we're spiritual teenagers who probably don't really even know all the questions yet, much less the answers. So we need to be humble and be teachable regardless. Because we may not know as much as we think we know. Harken back to prior to 1986 when we thought we were secure in the truth, we were keeping the Sabbath and going to the feast and everything was hunky-dory and we were going to jump a plane when the call came, go to the place of safety and everything would be hunky-dory. We thought that leading up to 75 and they picked various dates since. Just gone on and on, hasn't it? We didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't even know the questions. It's only been recently that I began to understand, beginning really in 1996, what had happened to the church and why. And you know what? The vast majority of the church still doesn't even begin to comprehend why this has come upon us and what to do about it. They think all we have to do is just keep preaching the gospel to the world and everything will be fine. Just do the same thing we did before this all hit us like a 
horse without a bridle? <laughs> they still don't get it whatsoever. You are among the fortunate few, or the blessed few, who at least grasp what's wrong, and therefore are in a position to try to do something about it. Let's see. So don't be like the horse and the mule. Verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the eternal mercy shall compass him about. There is deliverance for those who will serve God. Be glad in the eternal, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. So just understanding the opportunity and protection that is ahead of us should cause a certain amount of hope and joy. But then when God literally causes this to happen, then it says we will dance for joy that God has delivered us. Can you imagine how happy you would be if you saw the armies gathered about the true Jerusalem and they were about to defile the temple and you fled for your life and had a flood or an army following you and they were trying to shoot you and overrun you and kill you and pant, pant, you made it inside the gates of Zion and were protected. Imagine what your attitude would be. We made it. We're here. They didn't get us. Hallelujah. Praise God. And we would dance for joy. I don't know just what dance we'd do, but we'd hop around. Because we'd be so happy. Well, let's push on a little bit. Chapter 33, Rejoice in the eternal, you righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. When we praise God, He likes it. it it's, it's something that looks good on us. He tells us He enjoys our prayers. He enjoys us singing hymns to Him. That, that makes Him feel right. It makes Him happily disposed toward us. It is a joy for Him to hear us Sing hymns together on his Sabbath day. Praise the eternal with harp, piano work. Sing to him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. We have a new song. We have the truth of God, which the world does not have. And we're going to speak a new language and sing a new song, a completely new song, when we are resurrected in the first resurrection to become the bride of Christ. And only that 144,000 will know it. For the word of the eternal is right, and all his works are done in truth. He's not going to lie to you. This isn't a big fraud. When we read these scriptures, we can trust in them. You know, if it doesn't happen when you thought it might ought to, you could lose faith. But they're in here. We've read them many, many times. The promise of protection, the promise of blessing, the promise of being a light on a hill that cannot be hid. He doesn't ever give us a time element. How foolish. I just heard of a minister who's about to go to jail for some infractions, monetarily. And he predicted he and his wife were the two witnesses some time back and 
If it didn't happen in that Jerusalem over there where they went that year, that he would quit preaching. And it didn't happen, and then he found a way to keep preaching. And now he says, apparently, that Christ is going to return on May 27th, 2012. Hello! He's up for some more disappointment, I'll guarantee you. There are too many things in this book that take too long for that to even be a possibility. Too many things. It is so foolish to set dates. We can talk about the events. We can talk about the promises of God. We can see terror coming on the earth. We can see a way out of it. But we can't see the time. And it is foolish to set dates. When I said earlier in this sermon, give or take ten years, I wasn't trying to set a date. I was saying I'm seeing some leaves on the trees that indicate this ought to be getting pretty close. The leaves are getting thicker, okay? It's foolish to set a date, but we can know that the time is getting near by the things we see happening around us. But God has hidden the time. And it's foolish to even try to figure it out. Some years ago, I did a timeline of some events that have to occur. But I was careful to put on there, I'm not setting a date by doing this. I'm saying these events have to occur, and there is a certain amount of time element between them and among them. But I don't know the start date. And without the start date, you can't make a prediction for when it all comes through. So I said... These events have to start, and then there's a certain progression of time in them. But until that time starts, you just look at the timeline and you just move it on forward a year. Move it on forward a year until you see the thing happen. We know from the time that the abomination of desolation is set up in the holy place, it's 1260 days until the resurrection. Unless God cuts it a little bit short, He might. I don't think so. I think he's cutting other things short instead of that. So there comes a time when you could set a date. Possibly, unless he did cut it short. And he does say he'll cut something short, for sure. But until that timeline actually you can see start, you can't figure when the end's going to be. Merely foolishness. Let's see. Verse 4 is what set me off on that. For the word of the eternal is right, and all his works are done in truth. We can depend upon this word and these promises that he makes to us. We just don't know exactly when they're going to come, but they are coming. Mark his word. He loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the eternal. The beauty of his creation is all around us. And ultimately, it will be full of his goodness in the hearts and minds of men, but not until Satan is bound and Christ is ruling. By the word of the eternal were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depth in storehouses. 
Let all the earth fear the eternal. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Yet they don't. He either doesn't exist or he's old and tired or they have a different God. And for the most part, 99.999% of the earth or whatever it is does not know what they worship. And they worship Satan thinking it's God. You worship that which you follow. They do not follow the ways of God. They follow the ways of man's human nature and Satan. And that makes Satan their God. The Pharisees and Sadducees thought they worshipped the eternal God of Abraham the father. And he said, you worship, you know not what. And even told them that they worshipped Satan. Now, if I said that in a Methodist or a Baptist church, I'd be stoned immediately. But it's simply the truth of the matter. And it's nothing against those people in one sense. They are utterly deceived. And therefore, God can show mercy since they don't really know better. And he can call them and save them later when Satan isn't around. And Baptists and Methodist preachers aren't around. Even the Methodist and Baptist preachers will have their chance. Or whatever. Whoever. Verse 9, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Eternal brings the counsel of the heathen to nothing. He makes the devices of the people of none effect. The whole world is going to rise up against his people here at the end time, and he will make their word, their direction, their military of none effect. They can't touch us once God puts his protection about us. He will be a wall of fire and a defense about us, and they cannot penetrate it. The counsel of the eternal stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. He has the overview of everything forevermore. He's not short-sighted. Blessed is the nations who, nation whose God is the eternal and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. He's speaking of those under the new covenant there. A few from the Old Testament or covenant who were included because of righteousness sake, but not many. But he's filling out the main number of those who are in the first resurrection, 144,000, from the early and the end time church, the new covenant. The eternal looks from heaven. See, we are the, to be the inheritors. We are heirs together with Christ. We are to inherit the earth. So he's speaking of us here. The eternal looks from heaven, he beholds all the sons of men. So he's chosen a few to inherit the earth at this point, to rule it. But he beholds all people. It's not that they're beyond his scope of vision. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their heart alike, he considers all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. A horse used as a military uh, protection. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. 
You go to war, you have a horse, you have a tank, you have a plane. That doesn't guarantee you're going to survive. The other people have those too. And you may die just as easily as they do. Behold, the eye of the Eternal is upon them that fear Him, upon them that hope in His mercy, and not in horses and military, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Famine, death, and destruction are coming upon us. And God can deliver us. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Eternal, for He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Eternal, be upon us, according as we hope in you. See, this is written from a time of trouble, trial, tribulation, and non-deliverance, but it's looking forward to the time of deliverance. As we proceed through the Psalms, you're going to begin to see a time of deliverance. You're going to see these things fulfilled in the Scripture. So we are today looking at it from a time standpoint of God having turned His face from His church, His inheritance, but He will turn it back as we serve Him. He will protect us. He will guide us through it. And He will deliver us, even though that deliverance has not yet occurred. But it is coming, and we can trust in that. So he says, let your mercy, O eternal, be upon us according as we hope in you. So the hope we have, which creates obedience and service to God, is going to cause him to show mercy upon us. So instead of trusting in military and the things of men, we trust and put our hope in God. And he said, those are the ones that he will have mercy upon. So if you want mercy from God, there's a great deal of instruction here to show you how to obtain that. Well, we're within 12 minutes of the time to quit, so I think I'll stop right there at the end of chapter 33.